if we are going to treat each other equally, right? If we're going to move towards a world where we treat people equally based on their color of their skin or their sexual orientation or the, their gender, um, if we're going to move towards that, we also have to move towards equality with thoughts. That that one thought is not more, you know, ethical than another. That we we have to first give ourselves permission to say everyone's allowed to have all of the crappy, terrible thoughts, like, and have a sense of equality with that, right? Like we can't, we can't. This can't be conditional. That was Kimberly Quinlan, and this is mentally flexible. to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. And in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Kimberly Quinlan. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. She has previously served as the clinical director of the OCD Center of Los Angeles. Kimberly has been featured in many world-known media outlets, such as LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many of my favorite podcasts. She's the host of her own podcast called Your Anxiety Toolkit, and has an amazing Instagram page full of resources that I suggest you check out. I'll leave all that in the show notes. In this episode, Kimberly and I define OCD and clarify some of the common misunderstandings. We discuss a few of the subtypes of OCD and what treatment generally looks like. We highlight the role of self-compassion. We look at Kimberly's history with an eating disorder and what recovery looks like for her today. And we touch on what we value most about being therapists. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. That would mean a lot to me. And you can also find more about me and the podcast at mentallyflexible.com or follow me on Instagram at mentallyflexible. Thanks for being here and enjoy the conversation. Well, yeah, thanks again for doing this. I, I've been looking forward to this so much for a couple of reasons. One, because ever since I heard you on a couple podcasts, it was around the same time when I started doing more work with OCD and you were like such a huge influence for me and my understanding of working with OCD. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'll give you a nice formal introduction and the beginning of the episode, but why don't you give us just like a brief summary of what you do? Sure. So my name is Kimberly Quinlan. I'm a marriage and family therapist in the state of California. I live in Los Angeles, but I am an Australian. Um, I'm an, I'm an American Australian or an Australian American. Um, I specialize in OCD and OCD related disorders and, and OCD related disorders usually involve sort of like an umbrella of different disorders, such as health anxiety, social anxiety, phobias, hair pulling, skin picking, um, and panic disorder. So a lot of the anxiety disorders. And I also specialize in eating disorders just because that's what I personally experienced in my own mental health journey. So that's what I do. Mm, well, thanks for that. You yeah. know, some, somewhere I wanted to start was, um, 
talking about OCD because I was reading on your website that some studies have shown that it can take like around 15 years for people to get properly diagnosed with OCD. And I think there's just so much misinformation or lack of education, not just in the public, but even amongst therapists and other Mm -hmm. mental health and um, medical providers. So I thought we could start by just doing a little PSA here and really helping people understand this, because I think the idea people have come from these like cultural or media portrayals of people who wash their hands a lot or are really orderly, which definitely can be it, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. So right. why don't we start by just how would you define most generally what OCD is? Right. So an OCD is involves two pieces. So it must have an obsession um, and it must have a compulsion. Now, what we're really used to seeing is the obsession around contamination or symmetry. You know, we see that a lot in kind of Hollywood versions of OCD, um, which is what I call it, which is, you know, hand washing, jumping over cracks, lining things up, making them look straight. And yes, that is two very valid subtypes of OCD. Um, when I was being trained to become a therapist, that's the only thing I was taught. I didn't mm-hmm. get taught anything beyond that. And I didn't know anything beyond that, unfortunately, because um, I hadn't you know, been trained in the area. But OCD, it involves an obsession and the obsession can target anything. Um, and it usually targets the things you value the most. So it's really common for a mother of her of a newborn child to have obsessions around harming their child, not that they want to. An obsession is usually an intrusive, unwanted, repetitive thought, but it can also show up in the form of a feeling, a sensation, an urge, an image. And this is really, really disturbing for people. And and often because we aren't educated on OCD, people don't tell anybody because they're thinking, why would I tell anybody that I've had this disturbing thought about my child? Or if you're in a relationship and you had a disturbing thought or an uncomfortable sensation around your relationship um, or your religion, you know, so it, it can show up in so many areas. And then once you have that disturbing, you know, irrational, often very irrational, but intrusive thought, feeling, sensation, or urge, you'll then engage in some kind of compulsive safety-seeking behavior to remove the anxiety or the uncertainty or the discomfort that that obsession causes. Now, these compulsions aren't just usually just one-off compulsion. A compulsion usually means you do it repetitively and it starts to impact the quality of your life. Mm. Yeah. And two things to explore a little bit more is on the obsession side to highlight what you said that it can really kind of attack anything. I almost think about it as like a, an infinite whack-a-mole game mm-hmm. where it could kind of go anywhere in your life, which is different than I think what we tend to think about that it can, it's in these very kind of narrow or clearly defined boxes. Right. Um, and then on the compulsion side that it, Compulsions can be um, things that just take place in our own minds Mm -hmm. and someone could be engaging in compulsions and from the outside, you wouldn't even know it. So I'll leave you with those two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, let's go back to why does it take between seven and 14 is the average amount of years it takes for people to be properly diagnosed and treated. It's because, again, we misunderstand that the obsession should just be, you know, these few small areas. And in addition to that, we think that 
our friend or our family member mustn't be suffering with OCD because we can't see them doing these compulsions. Now, you know, there are multiple types of compulsions that people with OCD engage in. Um, one is a behavior, a physical behavior. And yes, that is a valid type of compulsion. But to be honest with you, the majority of compulsions that I work with are not visible to the eye. They're mental compulsions, they're rumination, they're avoidant compulsions, um, it's reassurance-seeking compulsions. Um, these are really common forms of compulsions that, you know, we aren't trained to, to recognize, particularly therapists aren't trained to recognize them as that. A lot of people, of course, your natural instinct is if someone says, oh, I'm really afraid of dogs, your instinct would be to say, well, just stay away from dogs. But that mm. does turn into an avoidant compulsion over time. So, yeah, you're right on the money there is that, you know, obsessions can target any area, usually the ones you do value the most, but sometimes not. Sometimes they're just random, benign intrusions that happen in your mind, but they're repetitively, they're repetitive and they're very like concerning and, and can sort of make your day very hard to, to exist in because they're just nonstop back to back all day. Um, just like, you know, a, a really bad radio station playing all day long. Mm. And it can be really hard sometimes because the sources of obsessions, let's take even uh, if it's a thought, sometimes when it's a little bit more of a clearly intrusive thought, like take the example of driving down the, the the highway and that thought pops into your head of driving off the side of the road, it's like much easier to kind of put into the category of an intrusive thought. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes can be easier to work with, but that's sort of on a spectrum where right. it can start to get really murky and not feel like an intrusive thought mm-hmm. and very easily kind of slip under the radar and take over your life. Right. Well, most people with OCD question whether they have OCD, right? They, that's mm-hmm. a part of the obsession. So if you have a thought, like, what if I wanted to harm my family? Or if, what if I wanted to, you know, what if I accidentally did this one thing? Because it's being coupled with another intrusion, like you said, maybe an urge, right? An urge is this visceral feeling we have in our body that feels like it's being pulled towards something. People can often be really alarmed by that. And the combination of the two make them question whether or not, you know, they make them question what their obsession means and what it means about them and what it means about their future. And from there, you can be stuck on a loop for hours, days, months, years. Mm. So I know we just touched on that obsessions can really be anything, um, but there are some uh, trends or themes that people tend to experience that we kind of group into categories. Um, Would you be willing to kind of go through some of those common themes that tend to be sources of obsessions for people? Right, right. So we call them subtypes. Um, The... You know, I'm always a little careful to go through the subtypes because then there's always the person where we didn't cover their subtype and Mm. then they get really nervous that something is really wrong. But, yeah, there are Mm. these common themes that come along with OCD. Um, So, of course, we have contamination OCD, but there's also different forms of contamination called emotional contamination, which isn't that, you know, you're afraid of germs, you know, or you're afraid of getting sick. Emotional contamination is another subtype where you're afraid that you can catch somebody else's psychological state. 
um, like, like you would catch a cold. Um, so that's one form of a, a sort of an additional subtype. Then you can kind of go into the harm categories, which is, you know, will I harm my loved ones? Or there's also pedophilia OCD, which is the fear that you may do some kind of, you know, sexual act towards a minor. Um, then there is relationship OCD, which is what I talked about before, where your fear is whether you have the right kind of love for your partner or pure love, or if you've got the right, um, if your love is enough or if your partner's love is enough. So relationship OCD is a really common one that, like you said, doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, and so these are more of the harm, you know, style of obsessions where your fear is either you'll emotionally or physically or sexually harm someone. Um, but then we can move into more moral and religious obsessions. We call it scrupulosity, which is the fear and uncertainty around whether you have sinned or broken a rule or a religious rule. And it can involve compulsions where people, you know, either avoid their religion or spiritual practice, or they may repetitively ritualize in it by doing hours and, and, and many repetitions of different prayers, prostrations, and so forth there as well. Um, let me see where have I missed? We've got, uh, let me see. Oh, okay. So this is actually one that doesn't get enough attention, which is it's called obsessing about obsessing. This is a subtype mm -hmm. of OCD that's really, really hard to pick. Um, I'm not sure if you've even had cases with obsessing about obsessing yourself, but it involves mm -hmm. the obsession on whether you will get stuck in an obsession. Um, mm -hmm. Often with that, people get really um, stuck in a in a cycle of trying to perfect their treatment to ensure that they won't get worse. Um, it's a really, really painful one. Um, oh, I'm blanking. <laughs> yeah, just right OCD. Just right OCD, you're right, which right. is the – just right can be fixed or, or flexible, right? So with people with – we technically used to call it not just right OCD where people would have to engage in compulsions because things didn't feel right. Um, and that could be ever changing, right? So it could be that one minute, the drink bottle that I'm looking at is in the right spot, but then the next minute it mightn't feel right. And I may need to move it again, but just right can also be fixed where it's always the same and you just have to have it in this just right position. Um, mm. so yeah, yeah. But yeah. again, I, I'm cautious. I'm always very cautious to go into the subtypes because, um, you know, the person who has health anxiety might say, you know, well, you didn't cover, you know, that and health anxiety can have its own diagnosis, but technically we treat it under the umbrella of OCD. So we would include that as a subtype as well. Um, totally. and, and we could keep going and going and going. Totally. And, and that's where it can be really helpful even as a, you know, as a therapist to just look at it as what's the underlying process and realizing that it can sort of latch onto anything. And right. it seems like, the common denominator in all of this, would it be fair to say it's usually centered on uncertainty, Always. perfect perfection seeking, a lot of sort of black and white approaches to things, good, bad, right, wrong. 
Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, we know that OCD and, you know, in the OCD field, we just call it the uncertain disorder because it's always, you know, this is the new, this is the new way we think now. And this was when I was trained, we were trained to every different subtype got their own different packet and you didn't talk about, you only talked about this one obsession <laughs> with that client. And now the way that I have been trained and I, way I understand it is, the content of your obsession doesn't really matter um, because the process of somebody's OCD is always going to be the same. The mechanisms are the same. The functions of OCD are the same and the functions of compulsions are the same. And so um, we, I will often say to someone, the content of your thoughts doesn't matter. Um, the treatment doesn't change. We don't want you to get distracted by the bright lights of different obsessions because like you said, most of the time there is a whack-a-mole effect, right? You can have one obsession one day and then two minutes later have a different one. And so we want to just have this sort of very routine way in responding and so that we don't get involved in that content. Yeah. And I mean, when you work with clients through that lens too, it's, it's very empowering because you're helping them build a sustainable way to work with that underlying process. So whatever mole gets popped mm-hmm. up there. It's the same thing you're working right. on underneath. It doesn't take some whole new approach when a different obsession pops up. Right. Right. My, I tell my clients always, my goal is to have you come and see me for a short period of time where I train you how to do this yourself. Um, I don't want you to want, I don't, excuse me. I don't want you to need me for yeah. your recovery, long-term recovery. I want to teach people these tools that you can apply to any obsession and any compulsion um, so that, again, you're, you don't go down the, the rabbit hole of, you know, oh, I had a thought about my baby. What does that mean? That must mean something because I used to be contamination and now it's around my baby. So do I? what should I do? And in the, the way I try and treat is just, no, we just keep doing the same thing, right? We yes. use the same tools. Yes. And so... Maybe that's a good thread to pull there. Generally speaking, I know it probably varies bit by bit on each client and how your relationship develops, but like what does treatment with somebody look like that comes in? And um, Mm -hmm. let's say you get to the point where you assess clearly that it is OCD. Sure. So, I mean, the cool thing is, is that treatment does often look the same. Um, For a majority of people with OCD, we are so lucky. And this is why I get really sort of geeked out and excited is we're, we're so lucky to have a gold standard treatment that works. There are a lot of mental illnesses, unfortunately, that still we don't have solid treatment methods. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, I always use the example of I have, you know, seven therapists that work for me. And when they first start, of course, as every therapist is, they're a little nervous, right? And I always say to them, there's nothing to be nervous about. If you practice and rely on the science, you're golden. Your clients are in good hands. Um, and so that's always really excites me that we have this, you know, awesome treatment to, you know, we can use it with anyone. And so ultimately, if someone comes in and we've identified they do have OCD, the first step I always want to do with people um, is to educate them on their disorder, mainly because OCD is the doubting disease, right? It's an uncertain disease. And so it's really important that you have a really good understanding of the functions and structures of your brain so you understand why your brain's stuck, 
-hmm. right? Otherwise, it's a scary place to live in a brain where it gets stuck all the time. So we do a ton of psychoeducation. um, And we we do a lot of a lot of explaining and understanding of the brain. I have a model of the brain. We, we pull it out, we look at it, we explain it, we talk about it um, and go from there. From Once we've done that, treatment becomes really interactive and, you know, it's wonderful. We get straight to work. The treatment that I use is exposure and response prevention. That's the gold standard treatment. And ultimately what that means is we identify in the assessment all of the obsessions you have. We identify all of the compulsions you engage in. And then bit by bit, we are going to go down that list and practice exposing you to your fear and then practice the reduction of that compulsion. Um, And we may do that um, in a very ritualed way, or we may do it in a really fun, dynamic way in the room where we play games and we go out and we walk the streets and we practice doing the thing that they have avoided for so long. Um, mm. And after that, it's repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm. Yeah, working with OCD, especially if you um, set it up right and the client is really connected to their values around why they're doing it and you develop that good relationship, it can be really fun to work with. It's the most fun. Yeah. It's yeah. And that's what I often will say is like, this is a really fun career I have. Um, Mm -hmm. because you know, there's this sort of like joke amongst ERP therapists. It's like, if you, if you throw up, you're so excited because now you've got footage of, of, of throw up and you can show that to your client if they have you're at emetophobia or fear of vomit, or, you know, if you see a, a spider at your house, you take a photo of it and you're like, I can't wait to show this to my client who's afraid of spiders. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really empowering to do work where you teach people to face their fear instead of run away from it. Um, it's, it's really cool. And like you said, you and you touched on something that I missed, which is, um, it's important to recognize that, of course, nobody wants to do ERP, right? I've, I always, I've repeated this. Um, people who know me know I say this a million times. I tell all my clients, you should not want to come and see me. If you <laughs> I, want, I stole that from you. I that from you. <laughs> <laughs> you should not want to come and see me. If you want to see me, I'm not pushing you hard enough, right? You should naturally have a sense of like dread towards my face. Right. Um, and that's not because I mean, it's because I'm, um, I'm making you do something that naturally is really, really, really difficult. And so it's really important at the beginning as a part of that psychoeducation to understand why we're doing this work. You know, why would you come to me when I make you so uncomfortable every week? Why would you want to do this? And often we need to really identify the ways in which OCD has interrupted your life. Um, and the things that's taken away from you so that you do have the motivation to come and see me and, and be willing to do that work because it's not fun and it's not easy um, mm. for the person with OCD. Yeah. And that's why it was really helpful for me coming into o- treating OCD and ERP coming from an ACT background that was so values focused because mm. there really is something so um, powerful that we can relate to, even if you don't have OCD or doing exposure therapy, just when you're connected to something deep inside of you, that's important. It makes whatever kind of suffering you're going through so much more meaningful right. and you're more willing to do it. Right. 
Right. Yeah. So currently I'm, I'm writing a book actually. I'm in the very final stages of writing a book um, about OCD and self-compassion. And, and the thing that I have found in addition to my ACT training, which is like golden, like Stephen Hayes fan all the way, um, mm-hmm. is, is also as a part of this process. I mean, what I have found to be true is the person with OCD is very, very, very hard on themselves, harder on themselves than any other population I have treated. Um, they tend to have a, a very high level of shame, a very high level of guilt. Um, and this is, this is sort of like the secondary, you know, bruise for them. Not only has OCD taken so much from them, but their sense of self and identity goes with that. And so uh, what I try to do as well, and a big part of, you know, the act and motivation work that I do is to develop and muster muster up enough uh, compassion for them so that they can then develop a sense of this sort of wish for themselves to be happy and joyful and, and well too. And so what that often will involve is, you know, the opposite of what OCD wants them to do, which is to treat themselves with unconditional kindness. Mm. You know, it's a really, really beautiful practice to, and that I find to be incredibly motivating for them, right. Is I'm going to do this work, not because I like to punish myself and do by doing hard things, but I'm going to do this work because I genuinely want to live a good, happy life. Mm-hmm. For somebody with OCD or even without OCD who spends a lot of time in a very um, negative uh, view of themselves, how do you open up the door to self-compassion? What would be mm-hmm. some of the first steps to that? Right. Well, the work I have done, the work I do with my clients, because there's not a lot of literature out there on OCD and self-compassion, unfortunately. There's tons on basic general self-compassion. But I think it's really hard that, you know, I, you know, um, Kristen Neff has written these wonderful books and, uh, you know, Gilbert has written these great books on compassion. But what I found was my clients were opening up these books and going, yeah, that's fine for them, but they don't mm-hmm. have these thoughts. So yeah. none of this applies to me. And so the work that I kind of have been, you know, practicing by basic, you know, trial and error is to sort of take on an approach of equality, which is, you know, if we are going to treat each other equally, right, if we're going to move towards a world where we treat people equally based on their color of their skin or their sexual orientation or the, their gender, um, if we're going to move towards that, we also have to move towards equality with thoughts. That, hmm. that one thought is not more, you know, ethical than another, that we, we have to first give ourselves permission to say everyone's allowed to have all of the crappy, terrible thoughts, like, and have a sense of equality with that, right? Like we can't, we can't, this can't be conditional. It can't be like, yeah, you're, you're worthy of compassion unless you have harm thoughts or unless you have hmm. pedophilia thoughts or unless you do compulsions, then you're disqualified, right? So I think hmm. that that, a lot of conversation around that educating people that it, you know, thoughts don't disqualify you from this, but the, but the first step I always say to self-compassion is self-respect, which is you deserve to be treated with basic kindness, just like you would expect if you went to the market um, or you went to a school, you would, you would go in expecting a general sense of respect just because you're a human being. Um, and that, that sometimes can shift people out of 
rejecting compassion because they can see that they're basically treating themselves in a way they would never treat another human being. Mm, yeah. And to, to go off of that, that's another way I've found is a really has been an effective portal way in is to like garner that sense of warmth and love and compassion that they would extend to their niece or nephew or child yeah. or best friend and see and try to redirect that inwards. Right. Right. Or the child version of them, right? Yeah, like, yep. you know, if you were a child and you were seven and you were having these thoughts and you came to you crying, would you say, oh, you're a terrible human being and you deserve, don't deserve anything pleasurable for the rest of your life? Like you wouldn't say that <laughs> to yourself. Um, and so I think it, that, you know, is that, that part of us that can be empathic to other people exists inside us and can be directed towards ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So you touched on earlier that you do work in other areas too, like with um, eating disorders, right? Mm -hmm. And you, I hope it's okay to ask because you brought it up. You said that that's an area that you focused on because of your own history with an eating disorder. Yeah. Would you, yeah. Would you like give sure. a little more context to that? Sure. So, um, I resonate really so much with a person with OCD, mainly because my eating disorder looked a lot like OCD and mm. it felt like, it felt like the mechanics of OCD. So I had these intrusive thoughts and repetitive thoughts about, uh, the way my body should look and the way the amount of productivity my body should create and the amount of calories it should pump out every day. And then in direct response and in a bill in the, in response to not wanting to tolerate that uncertainty, I would engage in a ton of compulsive exercise, which I think is why I really resonate with my clients with OCD and a lot of avoidant behaviors, you know, food restriction, you know, avoidant, a ton of rumination. I always talk about like spending hours reviewing menus before I would go to a restaurant and so forth. And so, mm. um, you know, I was stuck in this for several years. Um, and lucky for me, I actually found a therapist who wasn't an ERP therapist, but she would make me do exposures, right? She's like, you have to go and you have to eat a, you have to eat a Mexican burrito this week. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that makes me really uncomfortable. And she would say, yeah, you're going to have to tolerate that discomfort. So a lot of the seeds of my work has actually was put in my own treatment, right? Um, mm. what's been beautiful is while I wasn't supervised under an OCD, under an eating disorder therapist, I do often see an overlap between OCD and eating disorders, um, particularly as a subtype we didn't talk about before, which is a t um, the, the treatment of orthorexia, which is ultimately contamination OCD with food, the fear of having um, any food with sugar in it or, you know, any kind of chemicals in it, and people become very restrictive to those mm. kinds of foods. And then we have to engage in exposures for that. Um, and, and I did have a, a, a tidge of that as well. Um, mm. and so uh, that was my experience, but, um, you know, I'm so happy to sort of report that I am in, you know, 100% recovery from that. And I, while I still have the intrusive thoughts, I can, I've gone many, many years without engaging any of those compulsions. Well, thanks so much for sharing all that. And 
something you just ended with there is I think a really important message to people that the end, like where you end up with successful OCD treatment or with uh, an eating disorder, when it touches that OCD flavor is we're not shooting for the thoughts, the obsessive thoughts or intrusive thoughts to go away. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's uh, powerful for you to share that that still shows up and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the thing that I would say to people who have eating disorder or OCD or any kind of OCD spectrum disorder is the thoughts are not the problem. Mm-hmm. How you respond to the thoughts is the problem. Um, and that's where we target the majority of treatment, right? Like, no, your thoughts, your, your thoughts, people without OCD have the thoughts that people with OCD have. But Mm -hmm. the difference is, number one, there's differences in the brain, but number two is their response is different. Um, And the cool thing is, the so cool is by changing your response, you can change your brain Um, Mm -hmm. and you can change the way your brain interprets a thought and so that it won't interpret it as as dangerous as it previously did. So it's not to say that, you know, again, treatment doesn't mean you're not going to be anxious. It doesn't mean you're going to have you know, you're not going to have thoughts, but it, but it does mean that you have a sense of empowerment and you have the ability to know that you can tolerate, you know, anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt. Totally. And, and what can change is the way you relate to thoughts. And there's a lot of power in that. Mm, Yeah. Like I've even noticed in my own life with like, I was trying to explain to a client, like even with my own intrusive thoughts that will often pop up while driving like there's one, whenever I drive home from work, there's a ditch. And because my significant other got into an accident and fell in a ditch one time, mm-hmm. this thought popped in. She's, she was fine. Thankfully, Good. um, uh, of like driving into this ditch, but I, it almost, the way I relate to it is almost as if that there's just like a little billboard sign on the side of the road of a car going into a ditch. Like yes. that thought is there. It's the same content, but it's like, so far away. It's almost just like it's a sign on the side of the road. And I think that's kind of what we're aiming for that we can relate to these very differently. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree with that. I mean, what I, you know, if I'm being, I haven't spoken a lot about this, but if I was being completely transparent, there was a period at the beginning of the, of coronavirus where my eating disordered thoughts got really strong. Um, and what was different about them was there was a different tone to them. And, and I hadn't experienced that before. And I know it was because general uncertainty is high in the world. And I know that always exacerbates everybody's anxiety and stresses and disorders. And and what was really helpful for me is even though it felt different, I was still able to just note it as a thought. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. It doesn't feel anything like, but I was able to go, yeah, all right. Maybe, maybe that will happen. Maybe, maybe you being in quarantine will mean that you get, you know, 400 pounds. And, and I'm actually really body neutral now. Like I haven't got, and I'm not afraid of that. You know what I mean? But my brain was sort of trying to get me on that one of like, Ooh, but it could be so uncertain right now because your environment has changed. And so for me, it was able to just diffuse and go, Oh, okay. There's a thought. Interesting. And, and you, like you said, sort of just watch it. But it was so interesting to me because I'm decade in recovery and that's the first time it got me, you mm. know, it, it, it got me for a couple of, I'd say an hour 
you know, it was like, oh, okay. But I still see, I still can recognize that it was a thought. Mm. I don't know about you, but sometimes not that I want those moments to happen or necessarily enjoy it, but they're almost really useful tools or teachers to help Mm. us better understand and get back into what our clients deal with. You know what I mean? Like when our, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever our stuff is, whenever it gets stronger or something pops up, there's almost this part of me in the background that's like, use this, like this is a useful thing to keep your compassion alive in the work that we do every day. Right. Well, and I agree with you because, um, our, this is where we go back to the compassion work is our own suffering makes us connected Mm -hmm. as much as I hate suffering. And I'm a human being and I talk about this all the time, but as much as I hate suffering, it always connects me to other people. Um, And that is sort of this amazing doorway to having communication and connection that I wouldn't have had I not had that pain or that Mm -hmm. suffering moment. So absolutely, you know, when I'm really burnt out in, and I know a lot of therapists are really burnt out right now, but when I'm really burnt out, sometimes you would think the solution is actually to, you know, make, take the stress off. But sometimes just sitting in that is it's so humbling, right? It gets you to sort of see how hard it is to get out of the thick mud, you know, mm-hmm. that a lot of people are stuck in, our clients are stuck in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a saying, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally like the inverse of what Yeah, exactly. Here. Exactly. It's the name of a book, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just heard yeah. someone say that one time. It's a name yeah. of a meditation book. I think it's by, I can't think of who it's by, but I've uh, seen it before. Yeah. Okay, cool. So when did you, were you already a therapist when you were like first got into treatment for your eating disorder or was that prior to your time as a therapist? Prior. Yeah, mm-hmm. prior. And actually I think the best part of my treatment was during my master's degree um, Mm -hmm. because you're required to be in therapy the whole time. And um, I, I was this funny to say, because it's so ironic. So uh, my, my my bachelor degree is in nutrition and exercise Mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. So I basically picked the thing that would make my disorder worse. Um, which I know a lot of people do in eating disorders. But uh, so I was, and while I was um, going through my master's degree, I was still working in a gym, which ultimately was compulsive in nature, right? It was keeping the disorder really well and alive. So the cool thing was, is again, it's just proof of the treatment, right? Is as soon as I took away from that compulsion and I was in my internship and I couldn't, I wasn't doing that anymore. I recovered at a much higher rate and a faster rate because I wasn't engaging in those daily compulsions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to follow up on something personal about you, but the, you're so right about how easy it is to have compulsions take hold of your life, but sort of masquerade Mm -hmm. as just like, Mm just what you do or what's normal. Yeah. And I think that can happen so often and it can be really right. eye-opening to realize how much it can take over your life. Right. Right. And, and it's funny when I, not to talk about myself so much, but when no, I, please. um, 
became a therapist and I have a podcast of my own and I finally mustered up the the courage to tell the story um you know because I hadn't told many people about my own recovery and my eating disorder at the time which was a decade ago emailed me and said I saw your podcast and she said you protected your eating disorder more than anybody I know right like you mm-hmm. protected it and I did, I would be like, no, this is not my eating disorder. This is who I am. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is what healthy people do. This is not part of my, so I think that you're right. I think that, um, as I'm treating my own clients, I have to be really patient with them because I might see it simply as a compulsion, but it might take them some time to get there. And sometimes you've just got to pull one onion layer off at a time. And often a client will say like later in treatment, like, oh my gosh, I had no idea I've been doing this one thing for years and I had no idea it was a part of my disorder and it was a function that kept the disorder alive. Totally. And I'd say that, I don't know about in your experience, but two things that can really start to take over your life without too much awareness is like reassurance seeking with people in your life and avoidance. Avoidance. Those are two really sneaky ones. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I have reminded people avoidance is a compulsion right? And and people will say, no, it's fine. Like here's a really good example is a client who's afraid of flying might say, I'm just not interested in trouble. It doesn't Mm -hmm. line up with my values. And and I I make the joke. I'll say, no, OCD has gotten dressed up in a Halloween costume as your values. (laughs) And that's what this is, right? Like uh, OCD has the ability to dress up and be like, Hey, look at me. I'm your values, you know? Um, but it's, you know, I think we have to have those really hard conversations with ourselves um, and compassionate conversations with our clients because, you know, behind the avoidance is a tremendous degree of fear. Mm. So in your work with clients now, when you're working with clients with eating disorders, how much of your own uh, history comes into the room in either like, I guess I'll leave it generally like that. Like how, how does that show up in your work? You mean, do I disclose? Yeah. Whether it's yeah. like disclosure using your experiences or whether if certain things remind you of yours and it can kind of hook you sometimes, or if it helps you deepen your compassion, like how does it show up? Sure. So, um, I'm very happy to disclose. I believe that the only way we are going to beat stigma is to t- shout it from the rooftops. Now Mm. I try not to do that in a way that would impact the client or the patient's comfort level, or even just take away from their own suffering. But I'm a discloser. I have no shame about that. Um, I rarely get triggered anymore, mainly because I have worked so hard, (laughs) like so, so hard at really leaning into my worst fears and, and Mm. You know, and so, you know, I think the only time I feel really triggered is um, when somebody is allowing, let's say it's a female, and I'm being very general when I say this, but, you know, it could be a female or a male, and their partner is sort of shaming them about their weight. That sometimes will trigger me. But the cool thing is, is I show up really mummer bear in those situations and I get really political and I'm like, no, we, we, we can't keep buying into this idea that a woman's body should look this way or a man's body should look this way. And let's, and I get in mama bear mode for that. 
Um, and I tell yeah. my clients like you've, I've, I noticed mama bear showing up in me and that's because I want you to start to engage in fighting back against the views that are placed on people's bodies. Um, and the same goes for OCD. If someone came to me and they were like, I'm terrible. You know, my friend told me that I shouldn't have harm thoughts about my child or, you know, it's really weird that you have this one particular thought. I, I get mama bear, right? That's what triggers me. I'm like, okay, let's go, let's get in here and let's be really clear. You know, there, you can have whatever thought that comes like, you know, you yes. I get really passionate about that. Um, yeah. And so that's where I wouldn't say it's triggered. I would say it's more just very, very compassionate, very, very passionate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can be really hard when we as therapists can so clearly see the idea that thoughts are just thoughts. And, but then you get, when we have clients coming in within themselves and then not seeing it that way, and it's being fueled by culture and uh, the people in their lives. And there's this kind of huge inertia going into this idea that thoughts aren't thoughts and that's leading to all this shame and guilt and it's showing up right there in front of you it can be right. this like contrast that can be hard to grapple with sometimes right right yeah and but to sort of take it back to my therapy I had that modeled really well like my therapist would get furious in session with societal norms and expectations and perfectionism. And, and so I feel like I had this really great role model who, you know, as a kid, who, as a, as a kid and an adult who was always like a people pleaser and was like, Oh, well, if you said it, it must be true. You know what I mean? Mm. If, if some, if my, if my family member says such and such is true, well, that, that must be true. And so mm-hmm. it was really helpful for me to have someone model to me, that we can question these faulty beliefs that are in, inside of us and inside of the cultural system. Um, that was really cool. I agree. And I think that's an, a great place to end. And um, thank you so much for this time. I could talk to you for another five hours, so maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> sure. um, but thanks. Thanks for doing this. And um, do you want to share a little bit for listeners on how they can connect with you? I know you have a podcast and you have a book coming out. So Sure. sure. Yeah. So, um, I have, uh, I'm on Instagram a lot, which is Kimberly Mm. Quinlan. Um, Kimberly is with an E, so it's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y Quinlan. Um, my parents throw random letters into everybody's (laughs) name. Um, you can also get any of my online resources at cbtschool.com. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the acronym cbtschool.com. That's where I have a ton of free resources and you can also hear me on your anxiety toolkit podcast. Great. Well, thank you so much again. It's been uh, wonderful talking to you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yes, I know. I'll never know. But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul. Oh, yes, I know. I'll never know. But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul. Oh, yes, I know. I'll never know. But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and try to open my soul.